This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. Joining me right now is Dean Lawrence Carter of the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel at Morehouse College. Dean Carter, it is an honor to have you here as a Morehouse alum. This is very special to me to have you on the program. Well, thank you. I'm very honored that uh, you invited me. So um, you were there when I was in school and, you know, we spent uh, one of the things that was very treasured in my experience at Morehouse, um, which for most listeners to know is a historically black college at in Atlanta University and the, the alma mater of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you were there and one of the things I remember the most is going to convocations and crown forums uh, in the King Chapel. Can you just give our listeners a little taste of what is so special about that structure that you have been leading for so long? Yes, uh, I am the founding dean of the chapel ministry. The chapel was dedicated February 1978. I came July 1st, 1979. So this is my 41st year. And the high honor is that I get to preside over the most prominent and largest religious memorial to Martin Luther King Jr. in the world. We probably have more programming, more educational opportunities to learn about the interconnectedness of our small blue planet. People from all over the world come there. So the platform has become famous for welcoming leaders from practically every discipline, particularly political leaders. And I have the opportunity, as Mrs. King charged me the first summer of my arrival, to keep alive her, her husband's philosophy, its relevance. She told me that what she missed most about his ministry was his ability to connect social issues with his theological and biblical perspective. The last book that King wrote in the last chapter of that book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos, Our Community, he gives us his vision for the world. And he puts it in terms of the concept of the world house that we have all inherited and how we have to learn to work together as brothers and sisters or perish as fools. So Dr. Carter, uh, 
one of the things that I think uh, would be helpful for listeners is to get an understanding from your perspective about how Morehouse College played a role from Benjamin Mays to other professors and teachings that Dr. King may have had. It, it played a role in preparing him for the ministry that he led on the public stage for that decade or so. I don't believe that it is possible, and I'm not the only one with this opinion, I don't think it's possible that Martin King could have graduated from another college or university at the baccalaureate level in the United States and achieved what he did. He is a product of the African-American Baptist Church and of Morehouse College. And just mentioning those two institutions, I'm not naming all of the mentors and influences that impacted him, but Morehouse in February will be 153 years old, founded 1867, founded by a preacher, William Jefferson White. And from 1850 to 1864, he spent his life in underground classrooms, in his friends' homes, teaching slaves to read and write against the law of Georgia. And he organized the first Equal Rights Association in the South, 1866. And the next year founded what became Morehouse College. And what I'm telling you is that the branding of the school grew from his social activism, which was oriented heavily toward justice. Well, you know, the school has had a storied history since, and, and, and you've been a part of a lot of the leaders, uh, the education and matriculation of a lot of leaders over the course of the last couple of decades, few decades. Um, one of them is a former student uh, and uh, who was there when I was in school, uh, Raphael Warnock, who just got elected as the United States Senator from the state of Georgia, which, uh, and makes him the first African-American to serve in that role. What's your feeling about the, that bridge that connects from Dr. King through someone like Raphael Warnock going into the elected leadership of the United States of America? Well, the same thing that I said about Martin can be said about Raphael Gamaliel Warnock. He was powerfully impacted at Morehouse, coming from a Pentecostal fire-baptized Christian church and ministry. Parents were both clergy, and he came to a school highly oriented toward the Black social gospel justice tradition. And just for your listeners, by using the adjectival modifier Black social gospel movement, you're separating that whole tradition from the social gospel movement founded by Walter Rauschenbusch in the 1800s at Rochester, New York, Rochester Theological Seminary. His work was academic. It was not activism in terms of practice of the social gospel. He theorized about what it should be. He wrote about it. But the Black social gospel justice tradition is an activist movement. It's concerned about praxis, theory, and action. And so Raphael was introduced to this at Morehouse. And to make a long story short, I received a phone call one summer day from John Porter, pastor of Sixth Avenue Baptist Church, Birmingham, Alabama. And he said to me, Dean, I want you to send me a young man to be a summer intern to assist me here in the church. Send me the strongest and finest young man you have. And I said, I know who that is. His name is Raphael Warnock. I put them in touch with each other and Raphael went to the church and worked that summer. At the end of the summer, John Porter called me and said, the whole church fell in love with him. He was just what we needed and we have decided to pay for the rest of his education. And it happened. And Raphael became Baptist. <laughs> That is so great. It, it strikes me when I think about Senator Warnock, Senator-elect Warnock, um, and also our incoming vice president, Kamala Harris, who is a Howard University graduate, that the two people who are really going to be sort of the majority makers for the Democrats in this election are both HBCU alums. 
Um, but you know, they're not alone, right? We've had people from HBCUs in the house. We've had them um, elected in other roles. Mayor of Birmingham right now is a Morehouse grad. What is it, um, that as we look across America, doctors, dentists, ministers, teachers, you see these historically black college university alumni, are people often wonder, is the era of HBCUs over? Do we need them anymore when we can have a black president or a black vice president? I think there are two responses to your question. The era is not over and we do need historically black colleges. But I should quote Benjamin Mays, our sixth president, who was a significant mentor of Martin Luther King Jr. and who delivered Dr. King's eulogy. Mays once said, if historically black colleges, and specifically, he said, if Morehouse College is not good enough to educate whites, then it is not good enough to educate blacks. Our institutions have come into existence because of white supremacy, segregation, racism, a racial caste system. That's the same reason we have the black church. The purpose of the university or the academy is veritas, seeking the truth. The academy is not supposed to be built on race, on skin color, on the superficially visible. And so historically black colleges are distinctly different from majority institutions in the context of racist America in that they all, but especially Morehouse, emphasizes high expectations. One of the definitions, simple definitions of racism is low expectations. Everyone who enters Morehouse is tutored to understand that the entire faculty and staff and the alumni have high expectations of our students. We hold a crown above their head with the hope that they'll grow tall enough to wear it, an idealistic crown, a crown of excellence. And so many of our students come with poor high school backgrounds. And so the faculty, Dr. Mays once said, the faculty is expected, the faculty members, when starting a class on a particular subject, if the faculty member, the professor, discovers that something is missing in a student in the class, stop teaching what you're teaching and take time and put what is missing there. And so if you're teaching mathematics and the student speaks with grammatical irregularity, teach grammar. I came to Morehouse with an attitude that I could teach and work with anybody. And I've never met a student that I could not tutor or teach. And this is a hallmark, I think, of historically black colleges. Some students come as weak writers, weak readers, but with time, I have seen students graduate and be accepted to the leading Ivy League schools, Big 10 schools, Big 12 universities, and earn the terminal degrees in their fields. Martin King graduated from Morehouse College with a C average. He graduated from seminary at the top of his class. Historically black colleges give students a chance to discover themselves, to cultivate their values, and they are constantly supported. These are family situations because we know what we're up against and we know what we had to go through to get our degrees, especially from majority institutions, dealing with systemic racism that was not acknowledged by people who call themselves white. And those are very good points about the necessary the necessity for historically black colleges and universities. And I wanna thank you for, uh, for taking the time to speak with us as we celebrate Dr. King's legacy again uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. Lawrence E. Carter, Dean of the Morehouse College, Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm CBS News political contributor, Jamal Simmons. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America. From the CBS Audio Network, I'm CBS News political contributor, Jamal Simmons. 
As we continue to grapple with the COVID-19 pandemic, many of our holiday observations have gone digital. The National Museum of African American History and Culture is no exception. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This year, they're streaming a special recorded version of The Movement Revisited, a musical portrait of four icons on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, the people's holiday, from 4 to 5.50 p.m. Eastern Time. The concert will then be available on demand at the National Museum of African American History and Culture's website at nmaahc.si.edu. Joining us now is the creator of the Movement Revisited, six-time Grammy Award-winning bassist, composer, and educator Christian McBride, talking to our executive producer, Paul Woodhope. Christian, thank you so much for being here. My honor. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk about this wonderful piece of music that you created, uh, The Movement Revisited. I'd love to understand how that started. Was it uh, uh, all in one piece or is it something that developed over time? Uh, Very much developed over time. Um, I wrote this piece initially because of a commission that I received from the uh, Portland, Maine Art Society back in 1998. Uh, They were interested in Uh, doing some Black History Month programming. And uh, so uh, they asked if I would compose a piece based on, uh, you know, anything involving Black history. So it was, I was left to my own imagination to come up with uh, whatever concept I wanted. And, um, but the one stipulation of the commission was that it had to involve a gospel choir. And uh, I had, no idea how to work with a choir or write for a choir or arrange for a choir. So um, those lovely people in Maine introduced me to J.D. Steele of the Steele family. And uh, J.D. has pretty much been, he's been my foil in the movement revisited ever since, uh, ever since I first wrote it. And uh, at that time in 1998, uh, it was for a small group. It was for only a quartet and, and a choir, and the narrators were inside the choir. And um, so we played those four concerts in uh, 98, and then I didn't play the piece again for 10 years. And uh, when it finally happened, by that time, I was the creative chair for jazz programming with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And as we were programming the 2008 season, uh, my my boss at that time uh, said, I read somewhere that you composed a piece for Black History Month about 10 years ago. And, uh, I, and, and right away, I thought, this might be my chance to expand the piece. And so um, I said, yeah, I, I, I composed a piece called The Movement Revisited back in 98. She said, well, tell me about it. And this little voice in my head said, well, now's your opportunity to kind of, you know, blow this piece out. So I, I say it now because she knows the truth, but I actually lied to her and I said, 
Yeah, the movement revisited is a piece composed for big band, a gospel choir, and four narrators. I mean, that wasn't entirely a lie except the big band part. <laughs> so, um, let, let me break in for a second. That's a great story. So, the the uh, the original piece uh, that you performed in Portland, Maine. Uh, if I look at what I now have in my hands for the moment the movement revisited, where would I find, which parts would I find as the original piece that you composed and performed? Probably only the overture and the, um, and Sister Rosa. Those were the only two pieces that um, sort of were written, at least the, 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 the melodies and things like that. Uh, those were written in the original um version of the movement revisited but everything after sister rosa that that was all new and improved and and rewritten okay let's give a little listen to sister rosa right now did you decide Sister Rosa was the, the first uh, inspiration for this piece? Um, I don't know. It just seemed right. Um, I mean, in, in many instances, she is given, she is given credit as the mother of the movement. You know, when the, uh, the bus boycott was started in uh, Montgomery in 1955, that was because of Rosa Parks. So, what we know as the civil rights movement, um, she gets the credit for starting it. Now, uh, the subtitle to the movement revisit is a musical portrait of four icons. So tell us who you added with uh, Sister Rosa uh, sort of to your uh, Mount Rushmore of civil rights icons. Uh, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, and Dr. Martin Luther King with a fifth and final movement um, uh, kind of culminating in the election of the presidential election of Barack Obama in 2008. So um, to look at the stages of this, 1998 was when you first originally composed for Portland, uh, the Portland Maine Commission. And then you're in California and you composed several other pieces, and then you added the the Barack uh, Obama movement afterwards. Is that right? That was in two thousand nine when when I composed that part. And I I, I wanted I wanted to make it very clear that that fifth movement is not dedicated to Barack Obama because uh, at the time that I composed that fifth and final movement. Uh, he had only been in office for, you know, what, three months. So, you know, I thought it was premature to, to, to write a piece for a guy who had only been in, in office for 90 days, but what it took for him to become the president and sort of like the, the magnitude of that moment that wouldn't have happened without the, uh, the, the four icons that, uh, that I picked. 
and 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 many and many others. So many great civil rights leaders to choose from. And uh, we could go way back in history in that regard. You chose, you know, primarily 20th century uh, people to to enshrine in your in your musical tribute. Uh, was that a conscious process or was that um, just the way it evolved? That's, that's sort of the way it evolved, because in the beginning, um, I actually wasn't sure what I was going to do. Like, was I going to write a piece about a particular time in history, a particular person, multiple people, uh, multiple events? Um, just trying to figure out the what was, uh, was going to be very difficult. So I decided to make it personal. Um, from what I know about black history, who were the people that really touched me the, the deepest. And those were the four people that I came up with. Now, obviously when you're speaking about something like history and particularly black history, everybody's going to have an opinion on who are the most important people who are the movers and shakers who, who should get acknowledgement. And the truth is that, you know, I mean, if you say that you're going to pick four people, nobody's really going to agree on who those four people should be. That's why I decided to make this uh, um, uh, a personal uh, sort of statement. You know, I mean, I know I could go back as far as uh, Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, um, Harriet Tubman, you know, and Madam C.J. Walker, you know, uh, Langston Hughes, wh whoever it is. I mean, you could you could start naming people who have shaped um, this country, the 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 conscious of of this country. Uh, James Baldwin. I mean, you know, all the way up to people like Angela Davis, Shirley Chisholm, uh, Barbara Jordan, people people who have really made strides in in this. Uh, in this country. But uh, those are the four people that really impacted me as a child. So I wanted to focus it on, on them. Coming up, we'll have more with Christian McBride, the composer of The Movement Revisited. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jamal Simmons. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, 
As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Junior Day Special, Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jamal Simmons, CBS News political contributor. Free and left. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. We continue now with our conversation with Christian McBride, the composer of The Movement Revisited. Now, uh, the title of this movement is Soldiers, parentheses, I have a dream, Soldiers. Tell me about your decision to uh, entitle this movement Soldiers. Primarily, I have a dream in parentheses. Well, I use the, as you can hear, I use the I have a dream speech, which was so eloquently recited by the great Wendell Pierce. Um, but when I think of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, you know, I, I see an image of him marching, you know. Um, his his whole movement was based on people getting out there and demonstrating, you know what I mean? And, and, and peaceful demonstration. So um, that's, I always think of him as a soldier for justice. And uh, that's where that title and the, and the, the sound of the peace comes from. And it's ironic in a way because here is a man who dedicated his life to peace. Well, I mean, it's only, I think the irony is that uh, he died so violently, you know. Um, sadly, that seems to be the way it goes in, in, our, uh, in our world. You know, people who really try to stand up and and do it the peaceful way uh, are often cut down violently. That that's the sad irony. So uh, the next movement after soldiers is called a view from the mountaintop. Let's give that a quick listen. Now, when you listen to that piece of music, you can hear obvious references to uh, Martin Luther King's speeches, uh, to biblical references, and and also to the civil rights struggle. Tell me about your thoughts and inspiration creating this specific piece in The Movement Revisited. Well, I felt that soldiers, like, it kind of, it wasn't enough, you know, like if, you know, if we were really going to deal with Dr. Martin Luther King, um, well, it's like each, each piece, each movement in this piece kind of has a introduction and then the piece, but usually the introduction is someone speaking, 
like for example, uh, the Sister Rosa prologue is uh, the great Sonia Sanchez reading the words of Rosa Parks with uh, bass, flute, and percussion just kind of freely improvising behind her. Um, the Ali Speaks movement is just uh, Dion Graham speaking the words of Muhammad Ali with drums, accompanied by drums. Um, and so with these spoken movements, there's usually just some sort of free uh, improvisation or some sort of you know musical and voice interaction. But with the Martin Luther King uh, piece, uh, Soldiers is an actual piece, you know, um, because I just think sort of the the uh, you know the importance of Martin Luther King sort of warranted that. But the piece that I actually wrote in honor of him, of you from the mountaintop. That's one of the few songs that I actually wrote that has lyrics. I, I don't consider myself a lyricist on, on any level, but uh, I figured if I'm going to write something for King, I better dig deep. So um, I composed that piece of a view from the mountaintop and um, JD Steele sang it so lovely and, and the choir did a, a beautiful job. And, uh, I actually, uh, I, I like that piece. <laughs> it turned out okay. I, I, I kind of like it. All right. Christian uh, McBride, six-time Grammy Award winner, composer, bassist, and the creator of The Movement Revisited. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day special, unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. Acclaimed Dr. David Oyelowo earned critical praise for his role as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the modern film classic, Selma. In 2016, he sat down with us to discuss his thoughts about inhabiting a history-making figure like Dr. King. In, in playing Dr. King, in playing any true life character, for me anyway, I try to fully immerse myself. There is this overlap, there is this exchange where there, there, there are blurred lines. Where do I end and where does this character I'm playing begin? But, you know... You can't play someone like Dr. King without that leaving some kind of imprint. The mm -hmm. imprint that it's left on me is about social responsibility, really. You know, the, the realization that you can leave the world different than you found it. Playing Dr. King and the other opportunities I've been getting as an actor are lending me a degree of notoriety that, you know, my, my hope is that I can parlay that into leaving the world a better place than I found mm -hmm. it. I'm still figuring out exactly how to do that, but I do know know that beyond having played him, that is something I, I simply must do. Oyelowo reflected upon the role of faith in Dr. King's life. Well, I think that the, the purpose of faith, the purpose of a relationship with God, the reason why God gives us free will but also wants us to gravitate towards him is everything God does is regenerative. There is supposed to be an overflow. And so, therefore, um, 
you know, in, in my life, my, what I've seen is that as God has moved in me, um, there is an overflow. As God moved in Dr. King, mm-hmm. uh, a combination of his gifts, his talents, his faith, and uh, his calling all led to um, impacts that transcended his own life. We go to movies to see ourselves. And what you inevitably do when you're watching the protagonist is you transpose yourself onto them and you start thinking, what would I do in that, in that person's situation? What would I do if my wife confronted me about infidelity on the basis of a tape turning up on, on, on the doorstep as Dr. King? You know, what would I do? When I'm doing movies, you know, what I try to do, especially if faith is a is a component of it is i i'm not a fan of preaching i'm not a fan of bashing people over the head mm-hmm. with the gospel i'm not a fan of a film having an agenda to change people in a way that is heavy-handed, what I seek to do is to reveal the human condition that can be perceived as outside of you, outside of your experience, and to make you think. And if faith is an integral part, like it is with Selma, where you have a preacher whose whose activism is shaped by his faith, great. But if you are, are, are trying to tell the audience what to think. It's no different than when a composer, you know, in a movie, suddenly the strings start going and it's a scene that's not very good, but, you know, I'm being told to feel emotional. You can tell you're being lied to, and it's the moment you check out of the movie. The charismatic actor also revealed how he became overwhelmed by the presence of Dr. King in his portrayal. I had got to the point in playing Dr. King whereby some of the emotions that he no doubt felt I, to a certain degree, felt to have your life be threatened for 13 yeah. years straight, right. which is what happened to him, yeah. uh, you know, uh, from where he, he his his mission as a civil rights leader began to his assassination. Um, you, you know, that is a very heavy burden to carry. And. I just felt the weight of it. It almost feels irrational to talk about it now, uh, several months after having played him, but it was a real thing for me. I was very surprised when beyond giving that speech on the uh, Capitol steps in Montgomery that I was still alive. And that that that's how far in I had got. We were quite close to the end of the shoot at that point. And, you know, even what I mentioned to you about looking in the mirror and, you know, really, I had disappeared in, in, in many ways. You know, I, I had... Gained a lot of weight to, to play him. I stayed in character for the duration of the shoot. Uh, David had been squarely shelved. He also discussed the difficulty of finding King the Man beyond King the Icon. Well, you know, to me, the only reason to make a film of that transcendent figure is not to further accentuate their iconography. You know, what cinema does so brilliantly is it reveals us to us. I think felt that one would further accentuate the transcendence of this human being to be able to see him as a human being because he was a human being and did what he did anyway and that is hugely admirable. He concludes with how the movement led by Dr. King transcended racial confines to become a pivotal part of American history for all Americans. You know, in, in doing Selma, you know, that yeah. that problem of, of voting rights being denied black people was a black problem until white people saw Bloody Sunday and decided it was an American problem. And 
that's what tur- that, that's what ev- helped everyone turn the corner. One black person died, two black people died during the course of that campaign. That also made it something that I think white America felt a need to embrace. But it wasn't until it was deemed a human problem, an American problem, a black and white problem, that that there was real change. And you know that that that's that's the thing. I'm married to a white woman myself. When I get out of bed every morning, the first thing I think is not I'm a black man. That is something that the world around me imposes on me and therefore makes me uh, in some way have to uh, deal with the challenges that come with that. I've lived in a society in Nigeria where I'm uh, the majority, not a minority. So I know the power of getting out of bed and feeling like every opportunity that this society can afford me is mine to have. And it is empowering. And if you live in a society where that is the opposite of the case, it, it, it shapes your your, your mindset in a different way. It's what I call the Sidney Poitier syndrome. There is a reason why he achieved the success he did the way he did at the time he did. It was because he had grown up without a minority mentality. He didn't go into situations feeling like he was lesser than, and so therefore the way he thought of himself is what he manifested and brought to himself. It is a real challenge as an African-American male to get out of bed every day knowing that outside your front door is the very fact that you are going to be treated lesser than and it informs the way you approach the world. There is no healing without repentance. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't know that we've hit that point um, in, in this country. I, I think what you have is a lot of guilt. I think that and, and that creates a reaction. Um, I think that th- there is a reason why we've had a lot of racial tension in the wake of uh, Obama's two terms as, as president. I think it, it, it is, you know, some dormant opinions and tendencies have come to the fore because of white privilege, because of, in reality, uh, a white supremacy. You know, one term, OK, that was a mistake. Two terms, whoa, we've got to really rally. And, um, you know, and I think that there is a correlation uh, bet- between, you know, his presidency and, and what's going on in this nation. But, you know, uh, uh, like I say, until there is a, a, a true degree of acceptance that there have been things done in, in, in the name of America and what it represents that are not actually holistically what America tries to stand for, then, um, you know, there, there are some of these syndromes that will, that will remain. This is a great country. I mean, there is a reason why people come here from all over the world. There is a reason why I am here, and I love this country deeply. I've, I've been greatly blessed uh, by this country. But there are, you know, as there are with every nation, there are, there are syndromes, there are... Um, but, you know, I think the world is watching America because it is such a powerful nation. It is uh, such a, 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 a nation that shapes the world's culture. You're listening to the Martin Luther King Junior Day Special Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jamal Simmons. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E 
Byte.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Junior Day Special, Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. On CBS this morning, two of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s children and one of his granddaughters shared their version of the I Have a Dream speech. Some of the problems that we confront in the world today. And some of the problems that we confront in our own nation. By using as a subject the American dream. I chose this subject because America is essentially a dream. It is a dream of a land where Men of all races, of all nationalities, and of all creeds can live together as brothers. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now we notice in the very beginning that at the center of this dream, it's an amazing universalism. It does not say some men, but it says all men. It does not say all white men, but it says all men. Has certain inherent rights that are neither derived from or conferred by the state. There are gifts from the hands of the almighty God. Keep your eyes on the prize. For the American dream reminds us that every man is the heir of a legacy of worthfulness. But ever since the founding fathers of our nation dreamed this dream, America has been something of a schizophrenic personality. On the one hand, we have proudly professed the noble principles of democracy. On the other hand, we have sadly practiced the very antithesis of those principles. Indeed, slavery and segregation have been strange paradoxes. In a nation founded on the principle that all men are created equal. But now more than ever before, America is challenged to realize its noble dream for the shape of the world today does not permit us the luxury of an anemic democracy. And the price, the price that the United States must pay for the continued exploitation and oppression of the Negro and other minority groups is the price of its own destruction. So in a real sense, our is late. And the clock of destiny is ticking out. We must act now before it is too late. It is trite, but urgently true, that if America is to remain a first-class nation, 
She can, she can no, no longer have second-class second citizens. This has been the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Special, Unifying America from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm CBS News political contributor Jamal Simmons. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.